My name is Katrina Ilchenko and my life changed a year ago. Uh, before I lived in Ukraine and now I'm in Germany, in Berlin. Um, in my last life, uh, I've been 12 years as a digital entrepreneur and I was so much like self-realized, happy person. I lived in Mariupol, me and my husband, my mom, my daughter. Uh, yeah, but now I started my new life because, um, yeah, I survived in Mariupol. I've been in the middle of this hell. So exactly on uh, February 24th, me and my husband, we were on the Western Ukrainian ski resort. Many of our friends, they told us like, yeah, you have to go to Europe, uh, war started. But me and my husband, we made a decision. It was a mature decision that we are coming back home. My husband is a doctor. He said, I have to be in hospital. I will be needed so much there. And we actually, we supposed that this situation will be, but we didn't think that it will be so hard. Starting from March, 2nd of March, there was no connection, like no internet, uh, no electricity, no water. And that day they started to bomb the city. In Mariupol there were no sirens because it was 24-7. Like bombing, bombing, bombing. Like actually, like first days of war, uh, one missile came in our building on the ninth floor. And this uh, missile... It didn't uh, bombed. It was just inside our building all these days. I understand that it could uh, explore any minute, any moment. Uh, yeah, and my husband, he left in hospital. Uh, he didn't have opportunity to come home. Like once in three, four days, he was coming to see if we are alive and come back uh, in hospital. He was one of the um, doctors who um, treated that girls in a maternity hospital that were born. He said that that was the um, worst moment. He is a doctor for 12 years and uh, he didn't see that many dead uh, bodies during 12 years like he saw in three weeks. The reason why we came out of all this hell the the reason the chance i don't know how to say it is uh, yeah because the russians they came in a hospital and made uh, took like uh, hostages they managed to make an escape and uh, he came home i was super happy that he's alive <laughs> happy surprised uh, yeah but I had feeling that he is alive, but of course I was so much nervous. And our car, it was the only one car in the whole yard that was not bombed. I guess that because he made so much good things, he saved so much lives, so many lives. That's why maybe we've got our car and we just sit in the car and left with my mom, my daughter a cat and we, we we didn't know where are we going uh yeah but now 
I started my new life and uh, now in Germany I'm really struggling with the question what are you? <laughs> you suffered because of the war, you have depression and at the same time you're, you find yourself in completely another society where you are not a tourist, you are not a citizen, you are, oh, you are a refugee. <laughs> It's super hard for a person who had everything Like I had my business, career, two apartments, and in one moment you don't have anything because of Russia that uh, bombed my city, my family. Yeah. My f husband's father, he died during the war, and we didn't have any opportunity to make a normal funeral. And uh, what can I feel? I can feel only bad, but um, I'm thinking not so much about the city, but uh, more about people um, who died. I can say it for sure, because I saw this old dead bodies on, laying down on the streets everywhere. For me, it's uh, not a city, but a cemetery. That piece of music is Tyohi Nochi by Ukrainian composer Natalia Tsuprik, performed by the choir Sansara. Natalia composed it for her country's Independence Day in 2022, a stunning example of Ukraine's artistic prowess, a plangent lament for her embattled country. This is Doomsday Watch, The Ukraine War, Episode 6, Defiance. There are so many thoughts running through your head when war becomes a reality and not something that you've read about in the history books or seen, you know, through the eyes of reporters thousands of miles away. Um, or at least that was the case to me. On the one hand, yeah, I was terrified of dying to a Russian missile, just a random wasteful death that accomplishes absolutely nothing. But at the same time, there's quite a few layers of pride as well, um, professional journalistic pride. And there's also pride as, as a Ukrainian that um, what will I have to do to, to protect my country? Will I take up arms? Um, am I going to enlist in the military or the territorial defense? Um, and as for Ukrainians, well, we've learned that We are quite a bit more united and uh, quite a bit braver than maybe we had thought. There has been, and it still continues to be, such an explosion of not only civic spirit, but just community spirit. People scrounging together mutual aid networks to fund uh, military units with modern equipment 
to gather money for satellite networks and drones and the millions. And Ukraine is not a rich country. We're talking about donations from people whose salaries um, on a good month might reach four or $500 a month. These are just the efforts of determined Ukrainians. And I think that's the perhaps one of the biggest things that we've learned Uh Thanks to, <laughs> I say thanks to, due to Putin's war against us, is we are a lot more resourceful, a lot braver, um, and a lot kinder than maybe we even thought. That was Romeo Kokriatsky talking about his country's response to Russia's invasion. Across the globe, people are now familiar with Ukrainian resilience and bravery. This is partly down to journalists like Olga Tokariuk, now working from the UK. I asked her what kept her going. Well, it's definitely Ukrainian people, you know, knowing that I'm not alone, that I can just like speak and highlight the effort of so many Ukrainians that are fighting so hard um, for Ukraine to survive and for Ukraine to have a right to exist as an independent, free and democratic state. I think that's what gives me strength and energy and motivation. I know many of these people personally. Some of uh, the people who have been my inspiration and, you know, motivating me, they are not with us anymore. So it's both like my tribute to those who have been fighting and to those who are still fighting and looking at their efforts and what they do daily, even in much uh, more difficult circumstances and conditions than I am, because I'm now privileged to be in a safe country of the West. And, well, I hope to return to Ukraine as, as soon as I can. But still, you know, being away, there is a sense of guilt attached to it that I'm not there, you know, that I'm not going through everything that my people are going through. Um so because of that, I also like I try to work harder and to, you know, to reflect what is happening there and to just like tell Ukraine the way I see it, the, the way millions of Ukrainians see it and the, the way that maybe uh, the world hasn't seen it before. Olga has been doing this for a long time. In late 2021, she predicted Ukraine's ability to defend itself when all the world thought they'd collapse in the face of the Russian onslaught. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, I still have this article pinned in my Twitter profile because it's still relevant. And uh, back then when I wrote it, actually one of my motivations was that a lot of analysis that I've seen was so flawed and was so inaccurate and wasn't reflecting the mood on the ground in Ukraine that I thought, well, you know, I have to provide this different perspective, the perspective from inside Ukraine, the way Ukrainians feel, and also to kind of make a summary of all those changes that have been happening in Ukraine since 2014. The extent of change and of transformation that Ukraine has undergone since the Revolution of Dignity, since the Euromaidan, and since Russia first launched its uh, invasion in the spring of 2014, is remarkable, is extraordinary. Every single individual has uh, agency and is able to have an impact. As Olga explains... Ukraine was not some kind of defenceless failed state. On the contrary, as we heard from Jack Watling in the second episode, it had at the moment of Russia's invasion one of the largest armies in Europe. Ironically, 
It is Russia's repeated attacks and attempts to destabilize Ukraine over the years that have propelled this country's sense of purpose and unity. Here's Ukrainian political scientist Maria Zolkina. The social resilience and resistance of uh, Ukrainian society is one of the key factors which allowed Ukraine to repel Russia's attacks because on the first weeks of um, the Russian invasion last year, uh, large-scale invasion, uh, we, we had enormous queues to Ukrainian conscription officers all around the country. Not only professional armies started fighting Russian um, militaries on the ground, but people who were volunteers other groups of people who were volunteers supporting those who are fighting, all that made Ukrainian society resistant and allowed us to, to pull Russian forces back. And five out of nine strategic assault directions which Russia tried to occupy Ukraine from. That's the key. The whole country mobilized, and people who never thought of themselves as soldiers found themselves on the front line fighting Russia. Men such as Yevhen Shibalov, who gave one of the clearest accounts of the life of an infantry soldier I've ever come across, an experience that may not have changed in centuries. Uh, well, uh, my name is uh, Yevhen Shibalov. So for 15 years, I worked for Ukrainian media as a journalist. Uh, and then, uh, since 2015, I decided to contribute somehow to peaceful resolution in my home region. So, And I worked on the Ukraine team for the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. So at that time, I had some belief we can uh, negotiate a deal with Russia. But as you know, one guy in Moscow decided the other way. This day, I have decided for myself that probably I have failed as a peacemaker. And since then, I'm just a rocket launcher shooter of Ukrainian <laughs> infantry. So, Yevhen, you've described, in a way, a remarkable journey. Your job, you were a professional in the field of peacemaking, and you now find yourself as an infantry soldier. Can you say a little bit about your experiences now in the military and, and, and what it really means in practice for somebody who is not a professional soldier to, to find themselves in a real war? Well, I have joined uh, quite a specific branch of Ukrainian army, uh, which is named Territorial Defense Forces. And these are light infantry units mainly oriented to defensive operations, uh, which has not significantly changed since World War One, because actually... The base of defense line is a trench filled with uh, infantry soldiers. So what it means for me as a soldier, I suddenly found myself in the only type of all army units that are not allowed to withdraw. So that was quite challenging. Uh, and that's why it required uh, well-motivated soldiers who understand their role and understand why it is so crucial because it's really critical for your brothers in arms from other units. And uh, simply saying, what was our main type of operations is just to keep the line, dig a good trench, make sure it is concealed with plants, and uh, keep an attention and look for the enemies or to make sure they will not hide somewhere closed or they would not conduct successful assault operation. It does not require a lot of uh, training, but definitely 
requires, you know, some internal strength, let's say. Yeah. And one of the things you've written a fascinating article about this, and I recommend it to any listener, is you talk about the most important weapon, and it is not the assault <laughs> rifle, it's the shovel. Talk, talk to me about your relationship with your shovel. Oh, it's, I don't know. Uh, I feel it's like already my family member, because for the last year, I definitely had it in my hands uh, more than my wife, for sure. <laughs> So, yeah, I think, uh, well, surprisingly, despite of all, I don't know, scientific progress for the century, it's still the main tool for an infantry soldier. Heavy weapons, uh, they are not dangerous for the infantryman who has digged himself in the ground. Yeah. You know, when an infantryman uh, talking you something about uh, combats he took part in, so you should keep in your mind that he rarely see it with his eyes. The most active part of the fighting, he rather hears with his ears and feel with his butt, which is only one part of his body turned up. Because you're just laying down on the ground in your trench with the fence uh, to the ground uh, and everything. Done. You can just hear what is happening around. So, of course, it's so scary. You may have a lot of concussions when you are covered by artillery, mortars, strike helicopters and other terrible things but if you did not waste your time and you if you dig a good trench so you have a big chance to survive at least and of course surviving simultaneously uh infantryman in defense uh executing his main task so surviving he keeping the defense line because the defense line exists until the soldiers are there yeah and in a specific case uh, you, your infantry platoon halted an offensive by the Russian army. Uh, can you tell us, how, how was that possible? How was your little platoon able to do that? And what was the impact on the Russians? Uh, that was, you know, at the very first stage, that was quite like a marathon. Because, you know, we had a competitions with Russians who will take under their control all the small villages along the railway from Lysychansk to Bakhmut. So if they did, this would mean that logistics corridor is lost. And yeah. So what we did in the very first days is that we quickly dig trenches under the enemy's fire. And that was actually a key point talking about an infantry defense operation. So if you miss the chance and the enemy's infantry has dig trenches, this is it. So now you will lose a lot of time trying to break through that line. But we did. You did it. Your shovels saved you on this occasion. Yeah, well, they saved us, and uh, they also actually created the proper defense line. We uh, tried to be concealed as much as possible, and enemies simply didn't know the real force of opposing units. So probably if they knew in the very first day that then they have just a platoon of light infantry against, they could just attack with everything they had and probably succeed. Yes. But in these conditions, we also, uh, let's say, hide our real force. Or frankly saying, one of our ways to gain the time was just simply to hide our real weakness. This is just one man's story in the great history of Ukrainian resistance. There are so many other moments, such as the heroic defense of Snake Island against a Russian warship or later the sinking of the Moskva, Russia's flagship in the Black Sea fleet. 
And something I saw in Kyiv was a determination by the Ukrainians to develop their own new military technologies, especially in the field of drones, which have been a crucial element of Ukraine's resistance. But the reality is still stark, despite the stories of good humour and bravery. Ukraine's population is about 100 million smaller than Russia's. For a country with such an imbalance of potential forces to defeat the larger aggressor will require incredible levels of skill and creativity alongside the undoubted bravery and determination. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. As we record, the war in Ukraine remains in the balance. We've heard in this series how the Russians have been humiliated about their poor decision-making and outdated equipment. We've heard about Ukrainian bravery and skill, about how the Western world united behind them. But we've also heard how precarious the situation is. And Ukraine needs to take territory off the Russians. They've done it before in the late summer of 2022. Back then, after Ukraine's initial defense of Kyiv, itself a very close-run thing, by the late summer, it seemed as if they'd run out of momentum. Russia had made gains in the Donbass, and its ability to play the longer game and slowly bleed Ukraine dry seemed to be starting to work in Moscow's favor. Dr. Jack Watling picks up the story. The Russians realized they were not going to take Kyiv towards the end of March, and they ended up collapsing that axis. They realized the original invasion plan was flawed. They reprioritized on the Donbass. And uh, it was very evident at that point that the hammer was going to fall on Donbass. The Ukrainians were scrambling to prepare for that. Uh, And I was was back in Ukraine in mid-April. And I remember sitting down with Hur, with um, Ukrainian military intelligence, and we were talking about the kind of trajectory of Western support. And over the course of the conversation, we kind of came to the view that if the Ukrainians were not retaking territory by September, the international picture in terms of people's expectations as to whether this was worth continuing uh, would, would likely become quite unfavorable for Ukraine. So that conversation was already going on in April. Yeah. Um, at that point, how they would get to a position where they were able to conduct offensive operations really wasn't clear. Uh, the immediate priority was stopping the Russians in Donbass um, and, and preventing the encirclement of, of Ukrainian forces. We then saw this period where the Ukrainians were taking very, very severe losses. They were succeeding in preventing ground being taken, except for you know a couple of kilometers a day. But it was, it was costly because the Russians had built up a 10 to 1 artillery advantage.
At this point, something happened to change the calculus. New weapons started to arrive, particularly the so-called GMLRS Guided Multiple Launch Rocket Systems. From June 2022 onwards, they were coming in from the US and had the immediate effect of doubling Ukraine's reach to be able to strike behind Russia's front lines. Jack explains how this made the difference. For most of the war, Wunderwaffe, you know, weapons from the West, didn't really, they were important. The scale really mattered, but they weren't transformative. GMLRS was transformative because what it enabled the Ukrainians to do was reach out and start destroying all of the Russian logistics. At that point, the Russians lost the initiative. They didn't have enough soldiers to, motivated soldiers to attack without the artillery, and they couldn't bring up the ammunition to the guns to be able to continue to attack with the artillery, which meant that the pressure came off the Ukrainians and they could start planning a counteroffensive. There were several limitations on, on what they were able to do. The first was how many troops did they have equipment for and how many new units had they trained. And there was a debate that really developed through July. How many units do we need for this to be successful? And the number that came out of the process was eight maneuver brigades would probably enable a cascading collapse of the Russian military, i.e. breakthrough, and then once the Russian military collapses to continue to pursue them and keep taking territory. Um, the Ukrainians felt that they had four brigades that were up to it by September. And so the Ukrainian general staff's position was we should probably delay. The presidential administration's position was we need to convince our international partners that we can actually reclaim our territory. And if we don't do that, then their willingness to continue to invest in us may diminish. And so we have to do this now. The political logic won the argument. Therefore, there was a fixing action that was conducted against Kherson in the south. And because the Russians hadn't mobilized by this point, they were short of people across a very, very long front of around 1,400 kilometers. And therefore, they hollowed out some of their troops in other areas, which then opened up the Kharkiv axis. And so the four brigades that were actually ready for it were thrown against the Kharkiv axis. They succeeded in collapsing one Russian group of forces. Politically, it absolutely had the effect, right? Up until August, it was really hard to convince anyone that Ukraine might be able to win this. I would say after September, it was the opposite problem. Uh, I was struggling to convince people that victory wasn't inevitable. It was possible but contingent upon us properly supporting the Ukrainians to develop new units to be able to continue offensive operations in the spring. It was a stunning victory, and particularly the liberation of the major southern city of Kherson that had been under an especially oppressive Russian occupation since the very first days of the full-scale invasion. And who will forget those images from November 2022 of ecstatic residents embracing Ukrainian soldiers as the reality of their liberation sinks in. Not for the first time, we were witnessing images that took us back to the liberation of cities in Europe from Nazi occupation nearly 80 years ago. 
At the time, I got in touch with Romeo to discuss rare good news. I mean, I'm um, not ashamed to admit that I've uh, teared up quite a few times watching these videos. Uh, it's probably why most of the country has been in a really good mood um, for the past few days. Seeing these people be basically rescued um, from a lawless hellhole, it's hard to overstate how proud that makes someone feel um, and how relieved. It seems to me that <laughs> these are some of the golden days of the war. I mean, Ukrainians have been waiting for a major victory like this, a major liberation for months, really. Everyone is aware of how long wars can last, so there's no undue hope that this is going to be a, a quick conflict. Um, but that is exactly what has let Ukrainians kind of celebrate this much, that we were this successful in, in liberating our territory. Because these, these people aren't, like, strangers, but they are still my countrymen. So watching them run, you know, to these soldiers clutching like flowers or, or just crying is it's, it's incredibly uplifting. It's worth picking up on something Jack mentioned that it was President Zelensky and his advisers that pushed the military leadership to issue the go order, even when the generals wanted more time. And it proved the right choice. Here's Dr Mike Martin outlining how it all happened. When you totted it up over the last summer, summer 22, the Ukrainians actually took more territory off the Russians in the south than the Russians managed to take in the east. But still the media were painting this war as one, well, you know, the Russians are eventually going to win it. They're eventually going to win it. But by that point, the Russians had realized that really the Ukrainians were just fighting them in the east to a standstill so that they could take more territory in the south. Kherson was much more strategically significant. And it was more strategically significant because it was the only big city on the western bank of the Dnipro. And the Dnipro is this big river that runs all the way from Crimea all the way up to Kiev. And if the Ukrainians could evict them from there, that gives them a massive defensive line. It makes it much harder for Russia to push into Ukraine, but basically impossible for Russia to push any further into Ukraine. Remember, they only took Kherson because of this deceit, this, this, the, these traitors who switched sides at the very beginning. And whilst the Russians then suddenly realised a bit late, oh my God, we need to defend Kherson, which they did, they started to rush troops down to there and they thinned out their lines everywhere else in the country. And this really speaks to the, the fatal misjudgment they made at the beginning of the war, which was not invading with enough troops. And that they thinned them out specifically from the northeast around the city called Kharkiv. The Ukrainians spotted an opportunity. They punched through the Russian lines. They took out their supply dumps. They cut their supply lines and, and forced a massive Russian retreat from about 10,000 square kilometers of territory. And what you can start to see is this pattern emerging of two things happening in the war. One, the Russians go on a very manpower heavy intensive, which the Ukrainians hold and they fight in a traditional defense. And then when the Russians exhaust themselves or thin out their lines, the Ukrainians dive in and take the territory back. And so that happened sort of twice now. They held them north of Kiev, waited until they culminated, then pushed them out. Then they distracted them in the east, took the south. Then, you know, because of that thinning out in the south, they managed to take the area around Kharkiv. 
And then eventually, once Kharkiv had been taken, people started to say, and this was in September, they started to say, oh, wow, okay, maybe Ukraine might win. That's interesting. Or perhaps it's maybe not as the clear cut as we thought it was. And, and, and you know, perhaps it isn't so obvious that Russia is going to win this war. And over the remaining months of 2022, so leading up to December, effectively what the Ukrainians did was just destroy the Russian supply lines behind their forces in Kherson. They cut the bridges across the Dnipro. So all those Russians on the other side of the Dnipro were effectively unable to be supplied. And that forced a further Russian withdrawal in December from Kherson. And, and so three times the Ukrainians, by fighting the Russians to a standstill and then destroying their supply lines, have either forced a retreat or, in the case of Kharkiv, that was basically a rout, like the Russians abandoned huge amounts of equipment. Um, I think at that point in the war, Russia was actually the major arms supplier to Ukraine because of the amount of equipment that the Ukrainians had captured off them. Russia regrouped and mobilized, though itself wasn't able to counter effectively. Over the winter of 2022, it increased its airstrikes on public infrastructure across Ukraine, hoping to destroy the will of the civilian population. Ukrainians learned to go days without power or water, and Russia's other great focus was to surge into the trench warfare in the small town of Bakhmut, some 700 kilometers from the capital. Speaking in late May, this incredibly costly operation continues to be futile. Indeed, Ukraine may be pushing the Russians back after clinging on for 10 months. Back then, I spoke with writer and former Marine Corps Special Operations Officer Elliot Ackerman, who had just returned from a trip to Ukraine early in the war. Already, he knew where the emotional force lay. One of Napoleon's maxims, and Napoleon's obviously someone who fought a number of battles in that part of the war, but one of his famous maxims is that in war, the moral is to the material as three is to one, you know, meaning that moral factors, esprit de corps, a nation's will to resist, you know, all of those are three times as relevant as the material factors, you know, who's got the most weapons and bullets and, and you know, the most effective logistics. And so I think, you know, this is certainly the case in Ukraine, where you had a military that does not have the resources that the Russians have, but does have this significant moral edge in terms of the stakes of what it's fighting for, which is nothing less than national survival, and its ability to mobilize as a society. And so, you know, when you look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which was initially with a force of about 200,000 soldiers. That sounds like obviously an enormous fighting force against a much smaller Ukrainian military. But when you realize that all of Ukrainian society has mobilized to fight this war, you're not fighting the smaller Ukrainian military. You're really fighting a society of 40 million people determined to resist. That perceived Russian numeric superiority just vanishes. 
you will fight. Uh, yes, of course. So you're not going to leave Kyiv? You're not running away? No, no, huh. no. Uh, categorically, no. Vladimir Putin, please, go out to our country. Go out, go out. But if you come, it will be very bad because I know our army, I know our people. Now it's panic, but tomorrow it will be all in one and then it will be very bad for you. Think of the difference of motivations. In Bakhmut, we see convicts pulled from hellish prisons inside Russia and sent to fight in the trenches with minimal training, told to make frontal assaults where they're mown down by Ukrainian guns. And then there's George, a soldier with the Georgian Legion, driven to fight in Ukraine by his experiences in his home country, which came under constant pressure from Russia. Here's what he had to say on spirit and motivation. Many Ukrainians actually uh, have come and fought with us against Russian invasion in the 90s and also in 2008. And a friend of mine actually had an interesting experience in 2008. His uh, unit was taken to the front and uh, their transportation, while they've been driven, uh, got bombed uh, by um, it was a aircraft. I think it was Su twenty five or something. Uh, so he recalls that um, suddenly a Ukrainian uh, team of anti aircraft ap- appeared, and uh, this lady, Ukrainian female soldier, she opened the tripod and put the the tube. And she shut down the, the, the aircraft. Wow. It was like really wow. So, I mean, we had stories. That we, I, we know stories like that. And so knowing that, that yeah. Ukraine is a really friendly, peaceful, European, civilized nation. It's a beautiful country. I've, I've spent there 10 and a half months. And we've, we've been to many cities. And you see it's really uh, architecture and traditions and everything. The, the values, European. Yeah. And uh, then you see this kind of gray destruction pushing, trying to really enslave everyone and destroy and then build this dull Soviet-style concrete buildings. as horrible, ugly. So the, the, that conflict triggered in me all these emotions. I just can't live like nothing is happening and just my protest will be what? Then just commenting or, or watching the videos and I'm living a comfortable life yeah. and... Said so, no, it's it's uh, things are not done that way. And then also we have a good life here, because our ancestors paid the price. And then time to time, humanity and the countrymen have to sacrifice something, to to pay some price for the future. So uh, George, I'm sure you spent a lot of time uh, talking about you know why you were there with with your comrades, with your fellow soldiers. What's your kind of understanding of what is motivating them? So with our unit, actually, uh, it's interesting that we have people who uh, have been refugees in Ukraine. So and then you could hear some outstanding, amazing stories of people of different backgrounds. But with Russians, 
from from their side, I feel a lot of hatred and a lot of anger and a lot of uh, initiative to destroy, burn down. It's really sad. And also, in Legion, you don't see this. We don't operate with hatred. We operate with love because we love justice. We love freedom. We love uh, what's right. We love values, human life. And the only reason why we had to uh, stop and prevent this aggression, this evil darkness, is because of love. And they, they, they touched something that you love very much. So that's the that's the main difference actually between us. It's love and hatred. It's light and darkness. In your your own experiences, there must have been moments that were particularly uh, stressful or or kind of memorable. Perhaps you could share some of those those particular moments with us. Sure. No, we came quite close of of losing people or even being killed uh, regularly. Because that's a war, and then you shoot at them, but they shoot back at you, and that's that's a normal thing, at least uh, with so among uh, military among troops, you have this uh, non-verbal agreement that we gotta shoot at each other. But when they go and bomb civilians and kill ordinary people, that's the really war crime, and that is a wrong thing. Yeah. Other than yeah. that, okay, so we agree that we gotta kill each other, and that's fine, and. Uh, one time, actually, there was, this is just the first story that came into my mind, into mm. the memory. We went on a mission and um, we didn't know that uh, Russian side had uh, a drone there, uh, this uh, famous Orlan drone that flies quite high. You can see it with the unar unarmed eye. They're watching you, it means. Yeah. So the drone uh, operator gave the coordinates to the tank operators and they bombed our guys with tanks for a long time. Long time meaning good 20 minutes of non-stop shelling. The, the shells were, thank God, the, the terrain was uneven. So tanks were firing slightly above and the shells were exploding on the tree branches. So that was one of the uh, one of many uh, events that we came quite close to being really <laughs> gone. What's it like being in such an intense setting for so long? Because it's one thing, you know, for people who have not experienced war, you can imagine that maybe for 24, 48 hours you might be okay because you, the adrenaline would keep you going. How do you keep yourself going for so long? In the beginning, there is an adrenaline, and of course, every time you are exposed to the actual uh, direct, um, so to say, danger, yeah, um, yeah, the adrenaline is some is there. But other than that, you got used to humans uh, do get used to probably everything. Yeah. And one time, I remember it was already I was there already three, four months, something like that. And uh, one night, it's about one a.m. So I'm, I'm in my mobile and my American friend is also uh, kind of half asleep and others are sleeping. So this one shell landed about 150 meters from us. It was quite a big one, heavy artillery. So everything shook. I looked around. Okay, nobody had any reaction. Okay, all right. I'm carrying on with my phone. Another shell landed about 100 meters, so 50 meters closer. Yeah. So even more things started shaking. I looked around. Okay, no one has a reaction. So we gave signs to each other. Okay, nothing. And the third one hit about 
maybe 70 meters away, if not wow. 50, because it's so it's coming closer. Yeah. I, I asked the, our group leader, are we doing something? He said, nah, nah, it's fine. What's the point going to bunker? We've got to be buried in the bunker or die here, so carry on. And he turned <laughs> and they kept sleeping. And that, that's the usual daily life there. It's nothing. It's, it's okay. It's another shelling. It's another bombing, another danger. So uh, one of many hundred. So <laughs> that's the usual evenings there. So, so Just another day at work. Another day, another Tuesday. Come on, what are you talking about? <laughs> Don't even bother. <laughs> Just sleep. In the face of such aggression, it could be imagined that there is only loathing for Russia. But it was interesting hearing George speak of love, even in war. For Yevhen, his resolve was further tested when he was in fact captured by Russian forces. Given what you said from the outset, that your your own work before the war was about uh, trying to work with the Russians, trying to uh, find opportunities for dialogue, uh, how did you feel then to be a prisoner of this country that you were trying to, you know, find a way to cooperate with? Well, finally, I'm back home, which is good. So it yeah. means that at least some basic uh, diplomatic channels like prisoners exchanges and all that kind of things and exchange of uh, bodies of dead soldiers still work, which is good. But, you know, uh, it's quite personal. So... They had no. They have no uh, need to torture you as a common standard, and it really depends from the just uh, human whom you met there. Right. Now the majority of our guards and uh, all those investigators who worked with us, who interrogated us, they completely did not care about Geneva Convention or something like this. I'm not sure even uh, if they know about the existence of such a document. I think they don't. So sometimes I, I uh, pass through a hell, but then surprisingly the next day I uh, faced a very humanistic uh, actions from, from, from our gods or something. Yeah. So it was quite a contrast experience, let's say. Yeah. And you've written, and, and I guess this corresponds to your own personality and your own career as a humanitarian worker you've written that you you don't hate russia you don't hate russians i don't that's true but your your country has been invaded in this way and of course there have been war crimes you know there's what's happened in mariupol there there is we we know about bucha there are other incidents um uh, one thing i know that that many russians support this war and this is, in a way, the problem. There are some brave Russians who who protested, but not many. So, what? How do you feel about those Russians that support President Putin, support the war? How do you feel about that sort of um, that culture that appears to exist in Russia? Yeah. Well, first of all, actually, I'm a soldier, and an armed civilian is not an enemy for me, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, well, my. Uh, Legitimate target is a Russian with the Kalashnikov in Ukrainian land. Yes. As for war crimes, each war crime, I'm rather about, it's rather about personal responsibility. So each war crime has a name and surname. Yes. And they need to be identified, picked up, and these people should stand together with Mr. Putin, who is already called to International Criminal Court. Yes. Uh, 
But uh, talking about the broader Russian society who support the war, and I rather perceive them as victims of uh, long-time propaganda. You know, uh, being in prison, we also had uh, TV there uh, with Russian channels only. And I have concluded that if you have now any alternative sources, this one uh, looks quite uh, convincing. Right. <laughs> you know, it really creates its own alternative universe where all the bad things Russia do uh, had their explanations. And it's the you fault know, of Western powers or, or other manipulation or something like that. Yeah, indeed. That's why I think uh, I think it's a bit similar to uh, the feelings or the moods of German society during World War II. Yeah. When uh, then the Allies had a special programs on how to educate people about what really happened these years while you uh, were listening Berlin radio and supported your Führer. Indeed. Yeah, for me, it's, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, in less than 100 years, we have the same problem with a much bigger country. The voices on this episode highlight stoicism, even a willingness to laugh in the face of adversity. But we should not delude ourselves. In its current condition, Ukraine struggles to function as a country. One major result of the war is a hollowing out of the population. According to the UNHCR, by April 2023, there were more than 8 million Ukrainian refugees. At the start of this episode, we heard how Katerina fled the hell of Mariupol. Now she is safe in Berlin. But as she describes, the scars suffered by all those who seek asylum remain. Before, I traveled around the world a lot. I've been in 27 countries. And now <laughs> it's completely another story when you have to move. Not because you want to go to another country, but you have to move. You know, you have uh, the situation demands on you to be flexible, uh, to be resilient. But it's super hard to be because you just suffered uh, all this stuff. Um, I'm living with this fear all year. I'm trying not to tell uh, people around me about this idea but just one minute life can be completely destroyed and i thought that it's impossible in 21st century but it is possible uh, now uh, i'm here a year i learned language and i get used to it and psychological problems uh, get better and yeah now it's a uh, completely different you know, in our identity, in our mentality, we are not used to expect that somebody will help you, that somebody will treat you good, that somebody will take care of you. Uh, I didn't expect that. And that when we came here in Germany, I'm sorry, I started a bit crying because people really treat us so good. They helped us and... Um, 
you know, our people treat us very good and the country as well. Yeah, and I do hope, I believe, I pray that uh, the world can stop this Russian aggression. But, yeah, uh, it shouldn't be so. If there is a Ukrainian victory, refugees will then need a safe Ukraine to return to. And that means several things. Huge financial support from the West to help with reconstruction. And justice for all those Ukrainians who've been the victims of war crimes. But in many cases, those refugees will decide to stay where they have made new lives. Ukraine's population will be permanently altered by this war. And how will Ukraine set about creating a better, more just country after the war has ended? The Ukrainian Center for Civil Liberties won the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize for its work documenting war crimes and campaigning for human rights. Here's what Executive Director Oleksandra Romantsova had to say about preparing for a more just world. First of all, when we speak about human rights like a system... It's not a mythology. It's not a fairy tales. Russia bringing, they export two models. First of all, they export of corruption at the high politician level. And second, they export great zone like Abkhazia, Ossetia, Nagorno-Karabakh, Transnistria, where main idea of democracy totally destroyed by Russian aggressive polit- uh, politics. So 20 years before, when whole the world have a business as usual about gas and oil, and look at the Russia like some mystery, not understandable. Nobody want to look what happened with the human rights inside the Russia. So now when we appeal that, but this president elected, but society, yes, but 20 years, they don't have a normally elections exactly. They don't have a freedom of education. So they broke this connection between people and self-management of their lives. So that's why exactly human rights system, it's a system of preventing of war. And Ukrainians have a possibility to resist now. It's happened only because 30 years Ukrainians have a human rights. So when we speak about international system, first of all, it comes back to principles of Helsinki Final Act, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and comes back and create new mechanism about this obligation, about this dec- uh, agreement. I mean, if co- council, Security Council don't give these opportunities, so we need to find other solutions. In our episode on Europe, Liana Fix gave the stark assessment that Ukraine has become Europe's shield against Russia. But is it even more than that? Our previous series took a look at a world at war. Alliances shifting, sovereignties in dispute, the rise of authoritarian nationalists like Putin, but also, of course, Trump, Xi Jinping and Erdogan, all of which came in the context of a sense of failure in the West. Neoliberal economics having delivered increasingly unequal societies and our own military disasters in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. How does this new landscape look through Ukrainian eyes? Let's go back to my conversation with Olga Tokariuk. 
Absolutely. I think that the outcome of this war will define in many respects the future of uh, global democracies. And I think the problem, you know, like I've been here in the UK just for two months, but I have an experience of living in other EU country. And, and you know, the, my observations are that many people in democratic countries, they are taking things for granted. They are taking their freedom for granted. They are taking democracy for granted. So, I think uh, what Ukrainians are doing now, well, hopefully this makes at least some people to see that freedom is not free, that people are literally dying to defend their right to live in a free and independent state. I think then we, we need to talk about that, the, the outcome and the consequences. Nobody would would now bet against the Ukrainian army as they might have done say, a year ago. Uh, but is the end of this war... Uh, the expulsion of the last Russian soldier from Ukraine's territory? Well, from the Ukrainian perspective, it definitely is. And the goal is to force Russia to withdraw from Ukraine, to liberate all the territories that it has been occupying since 2014, including parts of Donetsk and Luhansk regions and uh, and Crimea. But it it shouldn't be just limited to that from the Ukrainian perspective. Russia must also uh, reckon with all the war crimes and crimes against humanity that it committed in Ukraine. So there must be justice for the perpetrators of these crimes. There should be also some sort of reparations paid. This is what Ukraine expects. And of course, there should be a debate on the future of Russia because uh, Russia cannot continue to be an empire, and Russia is essentially still an empire. The mentality of not just Russian ruling class, but of a big part of its population is still imperial. It still sees uh, its its neighbors as its subjects. Unfortunately, I do not see enough debate uh, concentrated on this, because there is too much emphasis on the notion that this is just Putin's war. I'm glad you brought that up because Russia appears to be the last European empire and one that that has not been through the process of decolonization, which other uh, European countries experienced, uh, particularly after World War II. And my my final question for you, Olga, is really to think about Ukraine's future. In, In some ways, it's the hardest thing to imagine because so much hangs on this war. But can Ukraine play a role in changing the Russia of the future. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of talk about the West as if it's separate from Ukraine, but Ukraine is fundamentally becoming part of the Euro-Atlantic community. So what is the role for Ukraine in uh, changing Russia itself in the future? Well, uh, you know, as I said, I think that this war was partly unleashed by Russia as a reaction to uh, the changes and to the transformation of Ukraine and that Putin, he sees a prosperous, independent and sovereign democratic Ukraine as a, as a threat. So definitely, if Ukraine succeeds, even despite this war, despite the destruction, despite the suffering, to become a prosperous and democratic and liberal state, then, of course, uh, uh, it will have an impact on Russia. Um However, I would, you know, I think Ukrainians are already under a lot of strain in, uh, you know, trying to preserve their own state and trying to survive and trying to, uh, you know, remain. um, Well, they will remain, of course, committed to their values because that's an integral part of the Ukrainian mindset. So I think we shouldn't really kind of expect that Ukrainians will transform Russia so much. Ultimately, it's still the task that Russians have to have to do. And, you know, when I hear a lot of like Russian uh, opposition figures and just Russians here in Europe who are kind of 
trying to tell me how much they are helping Ukraine, I really want to tell them, please go and help your own country. So I wouldn't, you know, expect that Ukrainians will somehow help to transform Russia, if not by leading by example. I firmly believe that the outcome of this war uh, in Ukraine and the consequences that Russia will face for its aggression will define um, the future of democracies and autocracies and who will ultimately prevail. Who will ultimately prevail? It is that global question of autocracy and democracy that we need to address now. So join us for the next episode, New World Disorder. Doomsday Watch is written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced and edited by Robin Meeburn. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Paul Hartman. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.